Maybe you felt chills or goosebumps. Perhaps it's an overwhelmed feeling of something bigger than you or more complex. Whatever the feeling, God put the response in your soul as a reminder of his presence, power, and glory. It's called awe, and he wants to remind us of it every day in many ways. Join us as we discover how God has used his awe to inspire others to follow him deeper in their lives. Well, thank you for joining us today. We have on the call with us Dr. Tom Woodward, who is Research Professor of Theology at Trinity College of Florida. He is also president of the C.S. Lewis Society, which fits right in with his apologetic background. Tom's authored several books, Defending Intelligent Design, including Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back. In 2012, he did The Mysterious Epigenome, which is a fascinating subject that he'll dive into a little bit more here about how the digital code above the DNA really controls it, and they talk back and forth and how that works and points to uh, God being involved in creation. He's married and lives in Florida, has four children and 14 grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. And of course, most importantly of all, he grew up in central Ohio like I did. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bruce, it's great to be with you. Yeah, central Ohio is a great place to grow up. And I don't know how many people have heard of Canal Winchester, but that was my stomping ground. There was Canal Winchester. Just what uh, would you say, the southeast side yep. of Columbus? You got it. Yep. All right. Yes. Again, appreciate you taking the time out to join us uh, from your busy schedule. First question I wanted to ask you is what won you over to the Lord in your first year of college? Well, that, that's a good question because I went straight from Canal Winchester High School into the uh, big university world in New Jersey. In this case, in my case, it was Princeton University. Um, you know, my older brothers, three older brothers, all four of us were valedictorians there at Canal. And uh, my dad also graduated from Princeton. So it was kind of like uh, manifest destiny, you know, they say. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but all of us, I would say, raised kind of Protestant or Presbyterian in, in most cases. We all veered away. It was like it's just that was late mid to late sixties. I graduated in sixty eight mm-hmm. from high school, and so we all kind of dropped religion, kind of tossed it to the side. Almost all of us, uh, I think, of that era. And so I be I was a pretty hardcore atheist by the time I was in the middle of my freshman year, and felt it my duty to reeducate some students there on the Princeton campus who were holding a Bible study. I had no problem with a Bible study, but then when they said there's scientific evidence for mm. creation, I I mean that was a that was a bridge too far. I said, wait a minute, there is no scientific evidence for creation. It's overwhelmingly a Darwinian truth uh, that we can stand on, and that's that's kind of the solid rock for me. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, as I began to interact with and actually kind of, you know, in a gentle way, confront some of the leaders, they wound up sharing what I'd never really under fully understood before, and that is that there is a moral issue, a conscience deep inside of me was telling me there is a moral code, it's objective moral code, and you mess up every day. Mm. So as they were bringing out the, the moral code, they were also bringing out, of course, the solution, uh, the estrangement, the brokenness, you know, the disconnect with God, and that is that Christ came, fulfilled Isaiah 53. I'll tell you, Bruce, yeah. re- reading Isaiah 53 or having it being shown to me was the shock of shocks. Because if there's one passage that just kind of, you know, just sends a tingle of like, um, I can't believe this mm-hmm. was written 700 years before Christ. Christ uh, referred to as the mysterious, you know, servant. And the servant comes and dies for other sins, not his own. He has no sins to die for. And 
and just repeating that over and over through that 12 verse, it was just, it blew me away. So I, I fought it for six months, did a Bible, investigated Bible study, and uh, at the end of my freshman year, uh, received the Lord in the privacy of a, a guy who was living off campus, but was directing this Bible study. And I basically told the Lord, okay, I can't get involved with this Princeton group. This is after I've become a baby Christian, I, because they're all a bunch of creationists, Lord, and you know I'm an evolutionist. I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine laughter cascading out of heaven as God as God you know, says, um, permission denied. You know, in other words, hang out with those students. You'll figure it out. And so I did get involved. Within a week, I, that, that issue faded to the background. And within two months, I realized, oh, my goodness, I've never heard about the fossil evidence that runs directly counter to mm. Darwin's dogma. And so you might yeah. say I was kind of set up for my critique of Darwinism right there at the beginning in my uh, end of my freshman year in college. Wow. What a great exposure to a group that coming out of school and going to a school like that, you know, and, and with your background, you you needed somebody who had the mental abilities to be able to speak to you on the level that could say, hey, hold it. You need to consider this, right? Oh, yeah. And, and the guy who led this Bible study, he had actually graduated from Princeton in 65. Mm-hmm. He had gone on to, um, I think it was Grace Seminary in Indiana, he was preparing to be a translator of the Bible for kind of tribes in Erie and Jaya, just north of Australia. Oh, boy. And so he was he was just a passionate, but just very quiet, effective Bible teacher. And he shared his story of becoming a Christian there on the same campus. And as I met more and more students who had come to faith or had been Christians and were building and growing their faith, it was just, I thought, this is awesome. And that was exactly, mm. precisely when the Jesus movement took off. Yeah. And so I realized, you know, in 69, summer 69, and just, I mean, pretty soon we'd switch from piano to guitars in our meetings, you know, and the group, which was 20, maybe even 15, was mm-hmm. 30, and then 40. And then by the time I graduated, probably 60 or 70 students. It was wow. an explosion of the gospel. And I think, in a sense, that was one of the great turning points in, in American history is when people began, uh, not just Billy Graham, he was doing a great job, but everybody began sharing there's a faith basis in Christ. Let's check it out. All across the spectrum of evidence, it's solid. Do you think that that uh, evidence is being consumed the same way today, or is it taking a turn? Well, I mean, the evidence is growing steadily. I mean, it's there overwhelmingly so in the in the science. In the Darwin side, I mean, it's almost embarrassing for the Darwinist because— mm-hmm. There's so many qualifications. There's so many retreats. There's so many like, well, you know, we thought Darwin's mechanism really did this and that, but we're looking for new mechanisms. They, they never concede the, the tree of life. They say, well, all animals, you know, are, have a genealogical relationship, which I would say is, is thoroughly implausible at this point. Mm-hmm. But the, the, Darwin, the Darwin side has become a tsunami of evidence, but then you still have a, a steady growth of solid historical evidence, you know, you might say worldview, psychological, philosophical evidence. And then, of course, there's the evidence that I would say flows from each of our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as we allow Christ to transform us, we in our own lives become an additional, you know, mother load, or an additional deposit of evidence in front of a watching world, mm-hmm. which makes it pretty amazing when you see some of the world's most famous journalists, uh, one atheist journalist in particular in England wrote an entire article where he said, the changed lives across the continent of Africa have shown me that there is evidence for Christianity, even though I can't make the jump now. Mm-hmm. When you read that in major British newspapers, you know something is happening. 
Yes. So tell me what kept you just glued to what God was doing and, and motivated you to pursue all the different things that you have since you graduated? Let me just uh, go into that question by saying when I finished high school, mm-hmm. went to Princeton, of course, did my, my undergraduate degree. I already was tugged in my heart to go to mission field through that same uh, Princeton. It's now called the Christian Fellowship. So PCF, I'll call it for short, Princeton Christian Fellowship. So PCF really gave me this passion for missions. And I had had 10 years of Spanish study. I was a Latin American studies history major, history major, but Latin American studies concentration. So I thought, well, I'll maybe wind up in Latin America. I actually took a detour by going into the Air Force to serve. I was a lieutenant in photo intelligence. Then I went to Dallas Seminary. I loved my four years there. I was in the same class as J.P. Moreland and Dan Wallace, expert wow. on New Testament documents. So they were sitting on either side of me in class. We had a blast. And then when I graduated, I actually married in my third year at Dallas Seminary, a widow with three children. So that made life very exciting and interesting. And we added a fourth. And after teaching three years uh, at a junior high and high school in, in North Dallas, and then another three and a half years Believe it or not, I worked with Reichardt Ford. I don't know if you've ever heard of Reichardt Ford. We're dealing, you know, mm-hmm. in the Columbus area. I was actually the leasing manager for them. And then for Swad Chevrolet, the Lord called us to the mission field in the Dominican Republic. Okay. And that's where I began my, my career, you might say, as a fossil evangelist. Now, my kids will say, you don't need a fossil display, Poppy. They call me Poppy <laughs> because you are one. <laughs> now, I will... I'll, for disclaimer, I haven't turned 70 yet. I'm getting a little bit closer, but uh, so I'm not totally fossilized. But I, I fell in love with the study of fossils. The whole creation evolution topic just came roaring back when I heard a debate recorded on the Princeton campus between Dwayne Gish and a famous guy, Ashley Montague. And, and that was where I just developed my own talk, showed it in about 30 different locations in the Dominican Republic in the late 80s. And then when I was hired here at Trinity College to teach missions, they said, when I asked them about starting a ministry focused on apologetics, they said, sure. What do you want to call it? I said, let's call it the C.S. Lewis Society in honor of the group that started at Princeton in the 1970s. And I found out later that group had kind of faded out of Mm -hmm. active, you know, functioning. So they gave us the legacy and they sent us all their paraphernalia. And they said, you take up the torch and move it from Princeton to Trinity College of Florida. That's and, great. And that was uh, that was our start. Wow. You're obviously a passionate person about about all the things that you're talking about and that you debate on. And people can see you on TV debating uh, atheists and, and whatnot. Um, so is there is there something that you look at that always reminds you of just how powerful and wonderful God is in our world? Or is it day to day things that spark that wonderment? Wow. Boy, where do I begin on that? I mean, every time, and let me just, can I mention a couple online resources? Yeah. So the the great work of Illustra Media, I think mm. you may be aware of uh, the um, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, and then The Privileged Planet, and then Darwin's Dilemma. These are great videos. They've done the Lee Strobel videos, all three of them. They did Flight Genius of Birds. They did Metamorphosis. They did Living Waters. Anyway, this company has a great website. It's the John 1010 Project. And if anybody wants to just Google John 1010 Project, that's a new website that has short 
bite size, I mean like three minute, five minute, maybe eight or 10 minute the most portions of their great videos that you can actually watch high quality watching for free. Mm -hmm. That goes along with the Evolution News. Discovery Institute has evolutionnews.org. It's a fantastic resource. I will go there virtually every day. So any of you guys and gals that want to be as smart as Woodward or smarter, just go to Evolution News. <laughs> evolutionnews.org and just read the daily reports. They're fantastic. And um, the, the, the work, of course, of Michael Behe, I think that's a name that, um, Bruce, you may be familiar with. Yes. I mean, he is truly a Galileo of today. Let me just say that. Wow. When, when the future, the history of this period is written, and the courageous people in science, I mean, we're talking about, you know, PhD in molecular biology, tenured professor when he was hired 35 years ago at Lehigh. That's just mm -hmm. one tiny step below the Ivy League. Mm -hmm. And his courageous work to be able to very cleverly, winsomely, but very courageously present the case for design through his three books. Mm -hmm. Those three books are legendary. You know, Darwin's Black Box. Right. Not just a book of the year, book of the decade. It's like a book of the millennium. Hmm. And, and I counted such a privilege that I've actually gotten to know this modern-day Galileo and, and worked with him, and, and he's a delightful person. Uh, pray for him. Uh, he's under a lot of stress from, you know, people, but he's just... He keeps smiling and moving ahead. His second book, Edge of Evolution, an, yeah. an unbelievable breakthrough. And then most recently, just February this year, his trilogy is complete with the most single powerful, single most powerful book yeah. ever critiquing the Darwinian paradigm. It's called Darwin Devolves. Darwin oh, Devolves is a hammer blow that just, in my view, crushes. It just pulverizes what, whatever was left over of the Darwinian paradigm. And so I just think that living through this period is unbelievably exciting, but just the science then just pivots you back to know the God who's fully revealed himself in Scripture. And that's where I, you know, I love to spend more and more time. Uh, I still you know, specialize in the scientific evidence, but I spend, try to spend as much time in teaching and analyzing and applying Scripture. That's where the pay dirt is. Mm -hmm. And that's where the apologetics ramps up in the area of the um, resurrection of Christ the clear you know, claims to deity of Christ, Lord, liar, lunatic argument, that's where it just explodes and it becomes extremely exciting. And the gospel is intertwined with it. You can't get better than that. Do you have an example or can you flesh that out a little bit more for people listening when you mm -hmm. say applying that and putting it to work? Because I, I, I think I know what you mean. But I'm just thinking if anybody's listening, what, sure. what are some things that you could tell us more about that? Let me just give you two. One is the resurrection of Christ. Okay, it's it's one thing to hear about it, mm -hmm. but it's another thing to actually interact with historical evidence. Mm -hmm. And this is where, in my view, um, Gary Habermas is a key resource. Habermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, actually did his research at Michigan State University for a fairly secular department there in uh, philosophy of religion and historical studies. But when he developed the minimal facts argument, I mean, he's dealing now with the facts that even the unbelieving scholars, the, the skeptical and even atheist scholars, are willing to grant that, okay, Paul did write 1 Corinthians. He did write it approximately 55 or 56 A.D. And if you just work with um, Galatians and uh, Romans, actually is admitted as a genuine Pauline letter, Philemon, 
is interestingly, First and Second Thessalonians, but Galatians and First Corinthians. If you just bring those two together, you find that Paul gave an eyewitness list of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. It's 15, 3 through 8. And if you use Galatians to trace back when he got that from the apostles, you get back to within about two years or less between the actual events, mm-hmm. you know, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and when that list was put together, when it was formulated by the early church. Yeah. So, so we're not talking about like um, a list of eyewitnesses. And, and Paul says, check it out with them. I, I'm mm-hmm. giving you my account. I'm giving you my eyewitness account. Uh, we have 500 people who saw Jesus alive, many of whom are still living. And so I think that that is one of the keys. And when you realize that the resurrection means the payment is made, the payment is complete, we can have freedom, forgiveness, complete relationship with God by simply trusting that Christ died for us and rose again and receiving that gift, just just asking God, just I, I confess my sin, I receive the gift of eternal life. When we do that, God does a, a, a dramatic, unbelievably, talk about a Copernican revolution. There's a revolution inside of us mm-hmm. that makes quietly, powerfully. And then that same risen Christ is, is, is alive, and he will coach us and lead us and teach us and guide us through his Holy Spirit. So to me, the resurrection uh, evidence has its tentacles, as it were, stuck out in about 100 different locations through the Christian life, as well as becoming a Christian. And that's probably the one that biggest did it for me, you know, when I, knowing that, too, you've got, and I think I wrote a blog about this, that who were the first witnesses? It was women. And mm, there you they go. wouldn't have been considered witnesses at that point in time. You never it, would have put put a report or created yeah, a report. That would just not happen. It's the last, last nope. yep. and yet here's who God puts forward as the first witnesses. That's awesome. It is amazing. And and like you said, then to know that all the implications that come off of us accepting Christ and the fact that we have the same power that raised him from the dead alive inside of us to be able to live a life that you normally could not live. Amen. That's yeah. that's, that's tremendous. Ephesians chapter 1, great statement, yeah. great reassurance. Mm-hmm. Did you have a second example? Yeah, well, let me just jump back in. Again, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of Christ-focused because um, Galatians 2.20, when I was at Princeton, one of our colleagues actually wrote a song, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Of course, he took that straight from Galatians 2.20. Mm-hmm. But, but when you study Christ, you know, Christos, the Greek word, it has the idea of the, the, the one who is the king, he's also the high priest, and he's also the prophet. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. When you get, but when you get to the, the claims of Christ, and, and, and they begin more subtly, but then he's dropping more and more hints mm. as he goes through his ministry. And then the subtlety begins to really fade in the last week as he's put on the spot and he's told by the high priest, tell us once and for all. Mark chapter 14, verse 62, if you are the son of the blessed, if you are the Christ. And Jesus says, I am. And after this, we'll see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. He directly quotes from Daniel chapter 7, the grand vision in, in Daniel 7, you know, 14 mm-hmm. through 16. And when you realize that the word kurios, I mean, the New Testament always says, you know, if you believe if you acknowledge Christ as kurios and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, what is kurios? It means, in the context of the Septuagint, in the context of that Greek translation, mm-hmm. 
of the scriptures, which all the, all the disciples knew by heart, practically speaking, all the churches and even the Jewish synagogues in Israel had a copy of the Septuagint. I mean, it was not necessarily as close as the original Hebrew, but that's what they were speaking. A lot of people were speaking that Koine Greek. So in the Septuagint, in the Koine Greek language, kurios is the word for Yahweh. So mm -hmm. it's saying Jesus is kurios. You're making a bold and shocking statement. Jesus, this one we knew in the flesh, was none other than Yahweh, the creator, who goes beyond space and time, who has no source of creation because he is the creator of all. And then, of course, you know, I actually have developed, uh, maybe we could, you know, talk about this on some other future occasion. I've developed a, a um, wise man acronym, W-I-S-E-M-A-N, and, and each of those letters stands for yeah. one of the claims of Christ. Because he was, he was a wise man. I mean, he was one of the great philosophers, perhaps the greatest philosopher ever, but he went way beyond wise man. He was the, the creator of heaven and earth and the one that uh, really manifests himself as God and therefore... We should present our bodies to him daily as a living sacrifice, you know, Romans 12. Well, yeah, let's definitely pick up on that in the future. I, I would love to talk more about that because uh, the statements even just that's why I love Hebrews. You know, you go into Hebrews and, and mm. here you've got the writer quoting David back in a psalm where, you know, he says, God says to the son, your throne, O God, endures mm -hmm. forever and ever. Your rule with the scepter of justice. Mm. You love justice, need evil. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. And here That's you've powerful. got, you know, basically the father talking to the son and calling him God. It's awesome. It is amazing. So let's pretend for a moment that uh, with all that you know about C.S. Lewis mm -hmm. and his whole life and his thinking, what would he say today to people that are listening to this? What What would be his encouragement for them, uh, his view for them to be able to to take on and go out into the world and express Christ to other people around? Well, I would say for any Christian who's listening, I think Lewis is an all-purpose, massive, unbelievable goldmine of resources. I mean, he would not say that. He's, he would be too humble. Mm -hmm. He thought his, his, his writings would fade from, the, from the, you know, the popularity, that they enjoyed a bit of popularity when he was writing, especially the Narnia tales. But I think that he would be shocked to see that the, the great books. I teach a course on Lewis at our campus. Mm -hmm. can, I sh can I share which books I have them, the students read? <laughs> sure. Okay. So Mere Christianity, we have them read the first two sections, the first ten chapters in our apologetics course. And then we go back and we read what's called book three and book four, uh, which is about another uh, 20 chapters. And those fantastic uh, chapters are like a foundation they're like a launching pad for studying C.S. Lewis. But Problem of Pain, mm -hmm. I have my students read that. And then the book Miracles, it's yeah. uh, maybe one step up, a little bit more difficult, but it's still, I think, fine for any high school graduate. And maybe high school students themselves could dive into it. And then I have the students also read one of the sci-fi novels, Paralandra. Okay. The, the Trip to Venus. Mm -hmm. but, I, but I think that Lewis is always seeking to honor what God has placed in our heart. Sometimes there could be just flickering uh, longings, kind of a pierced, like he had himself, he called them uh, these joy moments. Mm. Okay, so these just like almost painful, but beautiful, shimmering hints of a higher reality. Mm. I think God may send us those little kind of um, 
text messages or, or little experiential text messages to just like, oh, wow, what was that? That's almost like I glimpsed heaven. So I think that there is something that is deep and almost more intuitive, but also there is just the rational side. God says, you know, think clearly about what you've learned and it will lead to me. And that's what Lewis does with, with both reason and morality. He says reason points to God and morality points to God. Mm. But as if that wasn't enough, he, Lewis has another 16 other ways to bring you into the realm of Christian faith. And he knew what the struggle was because he went 20 years as an atheist, as a young man. Uh-huh. So I think that's one of the great stories is just how he, with the help of Tolkien, virtually his best friend at the time, and many, many other wonderful Christian scholars at Oxford, how he finally climbed out of the pit of his atheist uh, discouragement. And he realized, much to his shock, that there was a God. And of course, he wasn't like, oh, wonderful. He felt himself dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God at first. And then in retrospect, he realized how mind-blowingly amazing and wonderful God is. So that's my little Lewis. There, there's my micro-sermon on Lewis. <laughs> I, I could keep listening because you used a word the other day when we were talking that Lewis has the ability to smuggle things mm -hmm. into your soul. Oh, he does. And that's just a beautiful picture of, of what happens in his reading. He's very sneaky. He's, yeah. He's delightfully sneaky because... I mean, you go through even the Narnia books. Every time I read the Narnia books, I see more and more allusions to Scripture, more and more applications and connections with the Bible. Mm -hmm. And Lewis knows this, and the Christian who's read the Bible sees it instantly or pretty quickly. And the person who's from maybe an agnostic background like I was, it's like, oh, no, that's interesting. I wonder where he got that. Well, yeah. he's sneaking it in from Scripture again. It's, it's tremendous. You, you can tell he's God-inspired because I think it's like somebody said about the Gospel of John. It's deep enough for a baby to wade in and deep enough for an, an elephant to drown. That is a great statement. Can I quote you in my C.S. Lewis course? I think I'm going to use that. You can, though. I didn't come up with that. Okay. <laughs> I think I used it wrong. It's actually shallow enough for a baby to wade yeah. in and deep right. enough for an elephant to drown. Right. But yeah. I can't remember who said that. That's beautiful. That's Lewis. That's Lewis. John, Gospel of John and the writings of Lewis. Yep. Just like that. That's wonderful. As a last thing before we go, mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what do you think is probably the most important thing or would be most helpful for the church as a whole today concerning the things that you see and that you're, you're doing? What, what would be most advantageous for us or what do we need to hear? I think it's, it's simply a call to you know, it's not so much a call to arms. It's a call to pick up our tools, and you can call them weapons because we're fighting a spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a rescue mission. It's we're like the uh, the people being sent in to rescue those in Uganda. I, I think there's a movie made on that. I never saw it. But as I recall, actually, I think it was the Israeli citizens. Okay. And held at uh, the Entebbe Airport. Entebbe, right. Yeah. And a very heroic, very tricky mission. Well, God has sent each one of us as Christians into enemy-held territory. That's a mm -hmm. phrase that Lewis uses in Mere Christianity. And we're reclaiming that territory inch by inch, acre by acre, just like the Allied forces pushing back Hitler and the Nazis. And so I think the good news is that the scriptures are always primary. 
-hmm. but we have the ability to pull out, if I can use the Star Wars imagery, a lightsaber. Mm -hmm. Even there's a whole belt with 16 different tools. Each one of is a specialized lightsaber that have incredible power, amazing connectivity with the modern world. And we call this, this packet of lightsabers the apologetics armory. Mm. Because apologetics has gotten to the point where it's so powerful, it's so well-tuned in. I'm speaking in generalities here, but yeah, the ammunition we have, and even just the reminder that we need to be humble, right? First Peter 3, 15 and 16, you know, with gentleness and respect, making Christ the, the captain of our souls every moment of this life. But as we do that, we can share the basis for our hope, the evidence for our hope, the reasons for our hope, and we can do it at a time in history where this has the potential for rocking planet Earth with the gospel like it's never been rocked before. So mm. I, I just have a sense of the timing is such that God could sweep across this dreary, you know, sad, broken planet mm -hmm. with the message of Christ using the, the 15 or 25 lightsabers that, that you can just turn on zoop, and cut off the enemy argument. I'm not we're cutting off enemy heads, but the arguments <laughs> yeah. the other side are used. We can just, just poke holes in those all day long, but gently, lovingly, in a humble and simple way, present Christ mm. in, in conjunction with the apologetic tsunami that we see cresting and crashing all around us. Right. God, well, that's great. Beautiful picture. I, I'm a miss because I wanted. To, I did want to ask you one more thing. If you've got sure. another moment, sure, I do. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you so people would understand a little more about the epigenome. Yeah, and maybe talk a little bit about that before we go. Yeah, right. Yeah. So this will be my P.S. So we, I, I just signed the letter, and here's my P.S. <laughs> okay. So the epigenome is, uh, and and really the the book, the mysterious epigenome. You can obtain it, I think, through very easily through um, Amazon or whatever. If people are interested in getting a copy, if they can't find it, I'm, uh, we're at apologetics.org. We're blessed here at the C.S. Lewis Society to have that website. So just contact us at apologetics.org, and we can uh, ship a, a copy out. But the mysterious epigenome is our attempt, Dr. Gills and my attempt, to show that not only is DNA, the digital information DNA, spectacular, not only is that a powerful witness because of its um, mathematical identity, it's the same structure, identical structure with any computer code. And we know computer codes are never written by forces of nature. You need very, very smart people putting together the thousands, in the case of DNA, hundreds of millions of sequential digits of letters in the code. But now we know that there is, for example, on the top of most genes, a pair of methyl tags. And these are like a sequence of letters that are carefully positioned at the control sequence usually, it's like the um, a computer has a um, the control board where everything is is master uh, input and output, mm -hmm. and so every every cell has in our twenty thousand genes the on-off switch, and those thirty million on-off switches are placed carefully across each genome of three point one billion letters, and so those thirty million the arrangement of those on-off switches is different from cell to cell. So let's say the human body has 240 cell types. We have skin cells, all kinds of neuronal cells, and every kind of muscle cells, you name it. Uh, so we have a, a separate pattern of switching mechanisms or switching letters. And then that's leading on to the 
phosphorylation uh, letters. And then we have acetylation letters. And these are actually attached often in the spools where the DNA is wound up. So you go from layer to layer. You may have up to six, and many people say now, up to eight layers, including the cell membrane itself has patterns of sugar molecules that are sending uh, signals. So the DNA hard drive was amazing, but it's like as a computer, you move out from the hard drive, you find that the wires have mm -hmm. digital code in them. You find that the, the front screen, the, the see-through screen has digital letters imprinted in it. You just can't see them. And every even the outside shell of your computer has digital letters printed in it. What a shock that would be, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what a cell is. Welcome to the modern view of the cell. It's like infinitely more complex than we even dreamed 20 years ago. Mm. Wow. That is, it's almost overwhelming, but that it is. tells it you. Is. How could that just have been come together by chance, which oh. when I'm mad at my computer, I think it is just here by chance. Darwinian theory was already streamed like the end of the Titanic when it's not only taking on water, but ready to, mm -hmm. to slip in beneath the waves. But this is like, you know, multiply that times a thousand. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. Well, thank you for all that insight information again, and also the, uh, where you can get the books at. Uh, and thank you again for your time, Tom. I look forward to talking to you more in the future. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, representing uh, the world of apologetics in a very key part of the United States, Central Ohio. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Blessings we're, to Laura. We're dealing. You. All right. Yeah, we're dealing. <laughs> Say that to Fred Reichardt and my that's, old buddies up there. That's right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks appreciate a lot, Tom. It. Appreciate it. Bye. All right. Bye.